It's required of servants. We are required to be faithful in what God has called us to do. We're going to see we're required to be faithful as husbands, as wives. We're to be faithful at our work, to obey our master in regards to his commands at work. We're to be faithful in regards to our master, in regards to his commands in the body of Christ. We're to be faithful. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Equipping the Saints with Greg Lundstedt, pastor of Equipping Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina. And Greg, today we finish our look at Nehemiah's example regarding appointing leadership. And yet, why is this so important? Well, Dave, indeed we have a crisis of leadership in the church these days. So many ungodly and unqualified leaders leading God's people. Yet God is not silent concerning what his leaders should look like. And indeed today, we're going to conclude our look at Nehemiah's example concerning appointing leaders. So turn with us to Nehemiah chapter 7. Well, thanks, Greg. And as always, if you have to miss a portion of today's broadcast, you can hear this entire program online at etsradio.org. That's etsradio.org. Now, let's join Greg for today's message. Therefore, the money, therefore, the prestige, they're hirelings. And when the wolf comes, they run away. They do not have the heart of Christ. They have no true concern for the church, John 10. But true shepherds, those who God has to lead, have a concern for the flock because Jesus is moving their heart to be concerned like he is. Those who have a heart of Christ shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. 1 Peter 5, 2. God leaders are concerned with the spiritual state of his children. Hebrews chapter 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls. They protect you with the word of God, feed you, and protect you from threats, right? They're concerned. So Nehemiah appointed those who had a concern, a concern for the people that they would be over, spiritually speaking. Now notice, Nehemiah also appointed those who could do the job. Look at verse 2 again, back in Nehemiah 7. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem. He's the commander of the palace. He has proven himself as a leader in this sense, right? He puts him in charge. Now, don't get me wrong here. We need to recognize that just because someone is good in business, you don't go out like these churches and say, hey, this is a really good businessman, let's put him as a leader. No, they have to be godly. But not only do they need to be godly, they need to actually be able to do the task. First Timothy chapter 3 says, how can someone who can't manage his own household manage the church of God? You've got to be able to do the task. And this guy he appointed was the commander. First Timothy 3, I'll read this for you. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Got to be able to do it. Got to be qualified in a sense, have the ability to do it. But that doesn't mean you just take somebody who's the commander of something and put them in that position. They need to be godly, as we have seen. But they need to be able to do it too, right? Need to be qualified. And then notice, this is the most important thing here that we have, and this is the character of this second man, which I believe is the character of his brother also, it's implied. Notice what he says here. They put them in charge of Jerusalem, middle of verse 2, 
for he was a faithful man, Hananias, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Hey, it's fine to appoint the guy who's a really good businessman, but he better be a faithful man and fear God more than many, right? He better be truly a Christ-like person, right? This is an amazing statement. This amazing testimony of this man. He's a faithful man who feared God more than many. That means it was evident to Nehemiah, his faithfulness. It was evident to Nehemiah, his fear of the Lord, that it was more than many. Now, folks, faithfulness speaks of trustworthiness. It is required of servants of the Lord. It's required of servants. We are required to be faithful in what God has called us to do. We're going to see we're required to be faithful as husbands and wives, to obey our master in regards to his commands in regards to our wives and our husbands. We're to be faithful at our work, to obey our master in regards to his commands at work. We're to be faithful in regards to our master in regards to his commands in the body of Christ. We're to be faithful. It's required. You see, God tells us to do something in his word. He entrusts you with a gift or talent. He expects you to be faithful, and we do that by his power and strength. And I believe if you are faithful or not, you know it. I believe you know if you've been faithful in what God has called you, if you've been unfaithful in that. Do you remember the parable the Lord gave and shared in Matthew 24? Matthew 24, verse 45 Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of the household and to give them bread in his proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He's doing the master's will. Faithful slaves do what the master says. What our master, it's not me telling you what to do. It's not you telling me what to do. It's what God tells us in his word we are to do. And we are either faithful to that or we are not faithful. As we'll see, we might be not as faithful as some, maybe more faithful than others. The reality is we are called to be faithful. Matthew 25, what does the Lord tell the faithful slaves? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We understand faithfulness on a human level. You ask someone to do something, they say they're going to do it, and they don't do it. It's not faithful. Now, we got to recognize that sometimes as believers, God will lead us through circumstances to not accomplish what we might have said we're going to do. The Apostle Paul, an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he had said he was going to come back and visit them, but God was prompting his heart to wait because of their state. And so he was accused of not being faithful, but Paul was still faithful, as we're going to see. So we've got to be careful that we're not the judges of everyone else's faithfulness. It should be evident to us. It should shine towards us, right? But here, notice the body of Christ. We should be faithful for Christians. Paul would speak of those in Ephesus as faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.1. He speaks of this really great guy, Tychicus, who is a beloved and faithful minister of the Lord, Ephesians 6.21. He would address those in Colossae as the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, Colossians 1.2. He would speak of Epaphras as a beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. The Apostle Paul would tell people to do stuff. Epaphras, do this, and Epaphras was faithful in those things. He was serving Christ. He was serving Christ. He was faithful. Tychicus is mentioned again in Colossians 4-7. Our brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord. 
Peter would speak of Silvanus, that's Silas, as our faithful brother, for so I regard him. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, we see Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. We know the Apostle Paul said the Lord considered him faithful, putting him into service. 1 Timothy 1.12. Maybe God hasn't put you into service because he knows you're not faithful. And you're going to need to do something confessing. And then God will use you. Every day is a new day with the Lord. His mercies are new. Be forgiven. Move forward. Be faithful, right? Speaking of women deacons, now this is not leadership. This is recognized servants, not leadership. They're not exercising an authority. He says they are to be faithful in all things. 1 Timothy 3. 11, faithful in all things. And folks, we should be able to recognize faithful men. Notice what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And I'll read this for you. You can turn it to 2 Timothy 2, 2. He says, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's the word of God. He says, Entrust this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust it, Timothy. Faithful men. They gotta be faithful. You gotta be able to see it. And 1 Corinthians 4 reveals that just specifically with Paul and the Word, but it talks a principle that we see that servants of Christ must be faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or the word faithful. I'm a steward of the word. I better be sharing it with you. I better be sharing it every time. I better be faithful to the Lord's calling to me. I better be faithful to trust him and not rely on my own strength. better be faithful to allow him to do it through me, what he's called me to do. And he's called you also to do his will, to serve him, to obey him. And over many years teaching in the body of Christ, I've seen very few faithful people, really faithful people. Praise the Lord, we have faithful people here. You know if you're faithful or not. You know if you are. So how about you? If the Lord was to make a comment about you and his word, would he say, so-and-so, faithful servant? Would he say that? Would he say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Well, if it's not the case and you know it, then there's some confessing that needs to be done. And then when you're right with the Lord, as you walk with him, you will be faithful because we're faithful because he's faithful. And he will enable you to do what he calls you to do to be faithful at work and trusting him, to be faithful in your marriages and relying on him and obeying him. We're not perfect in any of those things. We make mistakes. To be faithful in the body of Christ by obeying him, to be faithful as we go into the world. So then, he appointed a man who was a faithful man. You know what? Leaders should never be appointed if they're not faithful. They need to be faithful. Faithful in their walk with the Lord. Faithful. And notice there's another statement he makes about him. Back in our passage, 7-1, he says here, He feared God more than many. That's an awesome statement. Have you ever met someone who fears God more than many? That's an awesome statement. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to fear God? The term fear, Yahweh, speaks of a reverence for God, which is manifest in obedience and turning from sin to God. Exodus 20.20, Moses says to the people, they were all shaking in their boots. God said, come on up. And they said, no, we're not going to go there. This is scaring us. Okay, so they're fearing. He says, do not be afraid, or Yahweh, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain on you, so that you may not sin. When our heart is focused on the Lord and walking with him, 
there's a fear there that we're not going to go out and just sin blatantly, right? It's when God is out of our minds. We're not thinking of him. We just go sin, 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 right? This man feared more than others. To fear God, one writes, it means to acknowledge his superiority over man, recognize his deity, and thus respond in awe, worship, humility, trust, and obedience. In Psalm 86, we've seen this before. David says, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Put my heart together. Pull apart all the divisions in there and unite it to fear your name. Help me do that. You see, David desired to reverence God, to be conscious of him and his actions. To be conscious of God in your actions. You're getting ready to be irritated. You're getting ready to yell at somebody. You're getting ready to worry. Be conscious of God in your actions. That's right. God is a good God. He'll deliver you. And when we fail, he'll forgive you. He's such a good God. Who is a God like thee that forgives? Who is a God like that? That's our God, right? Praise the Lord. And so we have this idea of fear. We're to conduct our lives in fear. We saw that First Peter 1.17, read it earlier. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We saw it because of the price that was paid, right? And Jesus Christ is exalted now, having humbled himself. Therefore, we're to work it out with fear and trembling, right? What does David say in Psalm 34? You can turn there. We get a little lesson on the fear of the Lord, a little lesson. He's going to say, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Come on and listen. First, he's going to exhort it. Psalm 34, and I wish we had time for the whole psalm. This is a long sermon, so hopefully you had your Wheaties this morning. We'll get out for lunch later. But 34, verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. That's great. Got want? Maybe fear is kind of left to you, right? The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, and those are the king of beasts, right? But they who seek the Lord, that's part of fearing, by the way, seek the Lord, shall not be in want of any good thing. You're seeking him, you're focused on him. Come, you children, listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you. Here, I'm going to teach you a lesson on it. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? The good life in Christ, right? Who desires that? Here you go. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from it. This is teaching the fear of the Lord, turning from these things, right? And do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Get away from the conflict and seek peace and pursue it, right? And there's a reason why. Because God is attentive to you if you're fearing him. And his ear listens to your prayer. But his face is against you if you are doing your own thing. Notice that this is really the key to the fear of the Lord. He's on my side. If I trust him, right? He's going to help me. He's a good God. Look at this. He says here, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. For he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than many. Those are the people you want leading. Those are the people I want leading. Those are the people, as I pray for God to raise up leaders in this church. It's what I'm looking for, to see that. Don't go out and try to do it on the outside. It's what God does. It's what God does. Tremendous statement. So... Do you fear God? Do you fear God more than many? Well, maybe we need to confess we have had a lack of fear. God's good. Be forgiven. Keep him on your heart. Keep him on your heart. His ears attentive to your prayer. The situation you're tempted to have conflict about, if you go to him, he'll help you. Instead, right? 
whatever it might be, tempted to worry, whatever it might be. So then, notice we have the type of leaders. And then notice Nehemiah now, back to our passage, he charges them. He gives them some instructions. It's five days before what we're going to see in chapter 8. Then I said to them, this is verse 3, this is after he appointed them, then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them be shut and bolt the doors. Hey, watch it, Riley. You guys are in charge. Don't let the gatekeepers do it any other way than this. Do it this way. I don't want them open until the sun's hot. Don't have them open early, right? They didn't open up at 6 a.m. here, right? It was when the sun was hot. So he gives them that. And then notice what he says, middle of verse 3. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is very wise leadership here. Each at his own post, each in front of his own house. Okay, you got guards. If they're guarding their own house, they're going to do a better job, I think, right? They're guarding their own houses, okay? So appoint guards. And so with that, we have some wonderful principles about leadership from this portion. But we're going to see that God prompts his leaders also to do his will, and then he affirms it with the Word of God. He prompts them to do things, and he affirms it with the Word of God. Look here, verse 4. We read it earlier. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So we got uh, Jerusalem, got the walls fixed, got the guards set, got the leaders, got everything, but there's not a lot of people in there. Okay? And it says, then, verse 5, God put into my heart, then there's a connection. The city didn't have anybody in it. Then God put in my heart to do what? Assemble the nobles. That's the royals and the blind of Judah. The officials, those are kind of leaders. And the people to be enrolled by genealogies. The implication is we need to know who's here to get people into Jerusalem. It's really the implication. But as we're going to see, after we have this genealogy that he sees here that God affirms, we're then going to see that they need to be spiritually rebuilt first need to be restored, spiritually built up, rebuilt. So then, again, Nehemiah chapter 11 points to that fact about it, putting people in Jerusalem, right? But there's a gap in between. That helps us understand the flow of Nehemiah. So he calls to assemble them by genealogy. We read through those genealogies, didn't we? The genealogy from Ezra, right? Those who came out at 538 B.C., Cyrus's decree, they came to rebuild the temple, right? There were 42,380, and I will not read those again, okay? That's out of millions, right? And then there were servants and singers and horses and mules, verse 69. And then we have this statement that I read earlier, which I think could be speaking of Nehemiah, because it adds into what Ezra had had, which was word for word before, completely accurate, but here it seems to add in the gifts that maybe Nehemiah and those had added to it. Verse 70, and some from among the heads of the fathers of the households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priestly garments. And some of the heads of the fathers' households gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. And again, I shared the term drachma here actually should be probably translated daric. That's a better translation. The word's only used here, basically, and in Ezra. So it's basically a word that speaks of a Persian gold coin, a Persian gold coin at that time. And the value of that was approximately the wage of a hired mercenary for one month. That's what it says in the history. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the history books say. And so then it's money for the work. Are you generous? For the work of God, 
We've got a lot of work going on here, I'll tell you that right now. Has God put on your heart to be generous for that? You know, I'm not asking for money. God just works in hearts, and he uses those hearts who are submitted to do his work, and he rewards them. You can't outgive God, Second Corinthians chapter 9, you know, with the right heart. So we see gracious gifts for the work of God. And then we have the statement in 73, Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people of the temple and all Israel lived in their cities. Same thing from Ezra, but how does it work in our passage? They're all in the cities, like from the genealogy. They're not in Jerusalem. There's very few in Jerusalem. That's really what's going on. And that's the move in this book to the next chapter and the chapters after that up to chapter 11, where they need to have some spiritual work done on them, just like the walls. And then the last part here at end of 73, we'll see this in our next passage uh, next time, because this is really the beginning of chapter 8, I believe. This is not in Ezra. It says, and when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Seventh month, five days later from the wall being completed, and we're going to see that the events of chapter 8 happened in the seventh month. So then, we're going to see as we look at that, that the work of God involves leaders, and with that there's going to be spiritual restoration and rebuilding through the word of God preached, the conviction and confession of sin, and a commitment to obey. The commitment to obey comes after the hardest right. So we've seen some principles about leadership today. And really, the main points can be applied to us. Faithfulness and fearing God, really, right? They can. And now there's some of you here who don't fear the Lord at all. He is not on your mind at all when you do stuff. You just live your life. God says in his word for non-believers, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear. You don't fear eternity. You don't fear God's punishment. You don't fear the reality that there's judgment and that you won't get away with anything you're doing, that there's the lake of fire, eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. But God also says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can have eternal life if you acknowledge your sin and believe in Jesus, God who took on human flesh and died on the cross and rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, save me. And guess what? Because of forgiveness, you will fear God. Psalm 130, there's forgiveness in thee that thou mayest be feared. You're going to have a changed relationship with the living God because you've been forgiven. Well, what about us who are believers? Are you faithful? Why or why not? Are you faithful in the things God has called you to do? Your family, your work, the church. Are you faithful? Not to me or not to someone else. Are you faithful to the Lord's commands for you in these spheres? Are you faithful? Why or why not? Secondly, are you one who fears God? Is the Lord on your heart? You know, if the Lord's on your heart, you're fearing him. You're thinking about him, right? When the Lord's on your heart, you don't do things that you would do when you're not thinking about him, right? And so we see, by a great example, a man who was a faithful man, and he feared God more than others, greatly more than others. Could that be said of us? I pray it is as we grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've just joined us, you've been listening to Equipping the Saints with Greg Lundstedt. You can hear today's message again by visiting our website, etsradio.org. That's 
etsradio.org. CDs of today's message or other messages are available at our website as well. And as a part of the Ministry of Equipping the Saints, all our audio resources are available at no cost to you, thanks to the Lord's provision through the faithful support of friends of this broadcast. To order your complimentary CD, call us toll-free 1-800-596-9144. That's 800-596-9144. If you prefer to request your complimentary CD by email, our email address is contact at etsradio.org. Greg, would you briefly summarize what we've seen about leadership from Nehemiah's example? Yes, Dave, and it's so simple. Apart from those qualities we see in Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and 1 Peter 5, and Acts 20, leaders are to be those who are faithful. They are to be those who fear the Lord greatly. These are the qualities that we should see in our church leadership. As we close today's broadcast, it's our prayer that the Word of God has done its work in your life and that you've been challenged and encouraged to follow Christ more closely. If you're receiving spiritual benefit from Equipping the Saints, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift today? Every gift makes a difference. No gift is too small, and every dollar is put right back into the ministry. To send a gift to Equipping the Saints, call us toll-free at 1-800-596-9144. That's 800-596-9144. If you prefer to donate online, our web address is etsradio.org. That's etsradio.org. Well, we hope you'll make plans to join us again next time, right here for another edition of Equipping the Saints.